Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. In 1992, the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, authored by John Gray, was published. It promoted what was then and remains a common belief, that male and female brains are structured and wired differently, resulting in men and women showing different personality traits. My guest today has used her research, wisdom and wit to challenge these ideas of gender essentialism and in doing so coined the term neurosexism. While her work is necessarily complex, she has made it accessible to all through her highly influential books, including Delusions of Gender and Testosterone Rex. She is a professor of history and the philosophy of science at the University of Melbourne. A very big welcome to Cordelia Fine. Cordelia, in your work, you explore the impact of gender stereotypes on children. So can I start by asking you, from a personal perspective, your view about gender stereotypes? You were born in Toronto, Canada in 1975. Can you tell us a bit about the environment you grew up in and when you first realised boys and girls were treated differently? Right, yeah, thank you, Julia. Well, I, it's probably not a surprise if I start by saying that it, in general I'm not a fan of gender stereotypes. I grew up in a family with, you know, a good second wave feminist mother and my father is just sort of through sheer rationality <laughs> thinks that people should be open to develop and explore things according to their interests rather than any kind of, you know, rigid traditional roles based on sex. But you obviously encounter experiences outside of the family home. And I think there are really two that stick in my mind from my childhood. So the first was from being in primary school in Edinburgh in Scotland and coming home and telling my parents that the boys were going to be learning carpentry and the girls were going to be doing sewing. So this would have been in the early or mid 80s. My mother was <laughs> shocked by this. She, she made my father dress up in a suit. I don't think he'd worn it since they were married. And she, she made him buy a copy of The Times, which is not a newspaper that he would normally have read. And she sent him down to the primary school to make a complaint. And, and it, was, it was carefully curated so that, you know, the school would see that even this sort of conservative gentleman in his suit with his Times tucked under his arm, like, thought that this was really rather old-fashioned. And so the school would realise that it was time to be a little bit more progressive in terms of gender roles. It was partially successful in the sense that everyone then had to do sewing. <laughs> so if there's anyone listening who actually went to primary school with me and has always sort of regretted the fact that they didn't know how to mould things out of wood, then my father is the one to blame. But there was still a gender distinction because the girls had to sew aprons and the boys sewed a kind of a spaceship on a, on a, on a piece of material. So it was a kind of, <laughs> it was a partial, a partial success, only a partial victory. And the other, I think, was from reading. 
So we were all avid readers in my family and I read a lot of Enid Blyton books and I, I remember um, spitting on the page because there was a part where, you know, one of the, I think it was the magic faraway tree and the male character said, no, no, you girls can't do that. Let me go ahead. It's too dangerous or something like that. And I was so infuriated that I actually... I actually spat on the page and I did later wonder if I, I'd sort of made this up and a sort of self-mythologised myself as an angry feminist. But then when my mum, she shipped all the books to Australia so that my children could enjoy them and, and I read them and I actually remember the moment I got to that book and saw this little ancient <laughs> ancient spit mark on, on the page where that sexist comment was. So I was like, yeah, that, that really did happen and I have the I have the physical proof. I'm, I'm loving both of those stories and I studied sewing, laundry and cooking at school while the boys did woodwork, metalwork and electronics. So I am with you on all of this. You went on to study experimental psychology at Oxford University, a Master of Philosophy in Criminology at Cambridge University and you did your PhD in psychology at University College London. What drew you to psychology as a field? And in those many years of study, did you encounter different treatment because of your gender? Part of the sort of avid reading in my household did involve actually reading a lot of books about animal behaviour, which I found really, really fascinating. I read The Psychology of Everyday Life, one of the sort of classic psychology books, and that really just drew me into the psychology of the mind. So that's what took me to study psychology your first book, A Mind of Its Own, combines cognitive science and behaviour studies to present fascinating insights on how the mind works and how it fools itself. You define patterns that you describe as vain brain, deluded brain, immoral brain, bigoted brain. It's obviously impossible to fully describe a book in a few words, but can you give us a flavour of the ideas you were exploring and why you wanted to get them to a mass audience through a book rather than the circulation of worthy academic papers to other worthy academics? I was working at that time as a research fellow in philosophy, and there was a lot of interest in philosophy about these questions. So, you know, philosophers revere rationality, and particularly when thinking about ourselves as moral agents, they sort of assume that we, we always have good reasons to make the judgments that we, that we do. And so they were starting to become rather disconcerted by the evidence that was coming out of social psychology that was showing that often we are influenced, our judgments, our behaviour are influenced by factors that we're not aware of and that we wouldn't sort of count as being good reasons to influence us if we were aware of them. And so I did think, you know, this is, this is such fascinating stuff and it would be great to bring it to a larger, wider audience. Little did I know that at the same time, Malcolm Gladwell had exactly the same idea. So his book, Blink, came out before mine and it was sort of interesting because his book was sort of, isn't it amazing all this stuff that our mind does without our knowing? It's fantastic. Whereas mine was like, oh, my God, there's all this stuff our mind is doing and we don't even know. So it sort of perhaps reflected sort of differences in our personalities or our take on the literature. But, you know, either way, you know, this is a sort of fascinating story of what's revealed, what psychology can reveal about what's going on below the surface of consciousness. Of course, there has been a sort of replication crisis since then. So some of the findings that have you know, that people are familiar with have been sort of cast in doubt. You know, that's sort of the nature of scientific knowledge, that it is self-correcting. 
But obviously the idea that, you know, we're not completely rational creatures was something that was, you know, it's been familiar to everyone, except perhaps for philosophers for, for quite a long time. There's more going on. What drew you from this work to taking on the many gendered stereotypes and tropes about men and women? And did personal experience of how limiting and pernicious these stereotypes can be play a role in moving your analysis onto gender? In a strange way, none of my PhD work looked at gender. The the work that I did following my PhD, it was focused on moral psychology, moral philosophy. Again, there was nothing, no real gender issues in there. And it was actually my experiences as a parent that brought me to questions of gender. So at the time, I was working as a research fellow on a project in neuroethics, which was looking at how are the new neuroimaging technologies that can kind of take, so to speak, take pictures of our brain while we're thinking, how are they changing our conception of ourselves? So I was was working on a project on that. And at the same time, I was reading parenting books. (laughs) Um, How to be a, go away, darling, mummy's learning how to be a better parent. One of these books was claiming that there are these, that, that, you know, these neuroimaging technologies have finally told us what we always secretly knew, which is that male and female brains are fundamentally hardwired differently. And that's why boys and girls think and feel and act so differently. And it's why we should parent them differently and educate them differently. So I was really interested in this, particularly because the author, popular author, was referring to parts of the brain that I'd studied quite intensively during my PhD. And this, you know, discussion of sex differences in the brain was just something that just hadn't come up at all. So I was kind of curious. And so, you know, one of the nice things about being in academia, of course, is that you do have access to all these research articles. And so I looked up the articles that were being cited as evidence for these claims. And I was shocked by the disconnection between what the study showed and this kind of popularization of it. And so I started to look at other popular books about sex differences, you know, in parenting and education, ones that are marketed to leaders, relationship books. And I was seeing how these sort of studies, these neuroimaging studies were being basically dressing up old fashioned stereotypes in this kind of neuroscientific finery. And it sort of deeply troubled me. So I did write an academic piece about it for the journal Neuroethics. But, you know, I thought, it would be nice to, to reach more than the sort of seven people who might read that academic article. And so that was the impetus for writing Delusions of Gender. It was to really as a corrective for these popular books that, that deeply concerned me because there was a sort of veneer of scientific authority that really didn't have any substance in the actual science. And when I wrote the proposal for that book, my original target were the popularizers. But when I came to look at the science itself, I realized that it was actually some kind of curious issues going on in the science too. And that's where I kind of realized, actually, there are all these assumptions and biases built into the scientific research itself, which also need to be looked at closely and taken apart. And that's when I realized this is going to be a much more complex book. It's going to be a much more controversial book but you know in order to have a complete picture this is this is the book that needs to be written and there it was. Let me ask you about some of the things that you explore in the book and let's start by talking very directly about brains. If we were in a lab looking at human brains would we be able to say aha this one's a woman's brain aha this one's a man's brain? 
Well, thank you for <laughs> catapulting us straight into the thick of a very heated controversy, Julia. Much appreciated. So not from looking. So, of course, you could weigh the brains and then make a make an educated guess since the male brain is on average larger than the female brain. Because men tend to be yes. larger generally and consequently all their organs tend to be larger. Indeed. Although in the Victorian era, it was, it was referred to as the missing five ounces of female brain. It was taken to explain why they were less intelligent. Of course, if it had been shown that, that men had smaller brains, this would also have been taken, no doubt, to mean that this explained why men were more intelligent because the information had less distance to travel across the brain. I'm sure there would have been some kind of rationalisation of that. There are now a number of studies that do show that you can predict whether someone's brain comes from a male or female based on sort of lots of information about that brain put together. So you can use machine learning to predict with reasonable or pretty good accuracy whether someone is male or female. There are a few important caveats to that. But the first caveat is you can't do the opposite. You can't say, well, we know this person's a male, so we can tell you what his brain structure is like. And that's kind of an important thing to know because you know, generally we're interested in brains because we're interested in what it tells us about how people think, feel, and act. So what this means is that we can't, we can say, look, we can guess that this person's brain is male, but it doesn't mean that we know anything about what this person is like, their personality, how they tend to behave. And that kind of reflects what we know about people, right? So, you know, if I said to you, underneath my chair, there's a man, tell me what he's like. <laughs> we can rely on stereotypes, but it's probably not going to describe the person under my chair. There isn't someone under my chair, by the way. Another caveat is actually when you look at different populations from different countries, the same machine learning algorithm does a much worse job when you move to another population. So that's suggesting that it's not some kind of universal characteristics of algorithm that can detect male and male and female brains. And of course, the third caveat is that when you're looking at an adult brain in the lab, you're looking at a brain that has had a lifetime of experiences and socialization, which has been patterned by gender. So you're not looking at kind of biology in the raw. Nonetheless, we're still very, very fascinated with sex differences in the brain and, and what they might mean. I think many people would be familiar with the sort of neural plasticity issues because many parents in particular study them because they're kind of amazed, intrigued and amazed at how fast children's brains develop and new connections are wired, particularly in early childhood. But on that point of if we looked at an adult brain, it's been shaped by a gendered environment. Is that a reference to neural plasticity and that the shape of our brains literally changes depending on how we use them? Yeah, that's right. You know, one can be too extravagant about the powers of neural plasticity and that, you know, takes us to another debate about sex differences in the brain. But it's certainly, of course, the case that, you know, we tend to get better at things that we spend a lot of time doing. And when you look at, you know, sex differences in personality, in cognitive skills, in social skills, you see changes in those sex differences across time and across place. Now, that's not because we're, you know, changing genetically. It's because we're looking at populations that have different kinds of gendered experiences. So, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, neuroscience is really only telling us something that we, we can already know just from looking at people's behaviour and how it changes over time, that our experiences influence how we develop and, and how we behave. 
For those who have uh, had in their mind the men are from Mars, women are from Venus view of the world, obviously that is not somehow conveniently explained by uh, blue brains and pink brains. It's not like that, as you've just described. It's very complicated. People would think maybe personality differences between men and women are therefore largely explained by hormonal differences and particularly the role of testosterone in men. What would you say to that? Yeah, this is something I noticed. So after I wrote Delusions of Gender, you know, so that looked very closely at, you know, the claims that are being made about sex differences in the brain. A lot of these studies were based on very small samples. So they're really, unfortunately, just picking up these kind of spurious or false positive results and then a kind of gloss of interpretation consistent with stereotypes being laid over them, either by the scientists themselves or with much more... (laughs) creativity let us say by the popularizers and when I sort of give give popular talks on this people say okay well that's the brain but what about testosterone so I thought yeah well what about testosterone so that's why I wrote testosterone rex and I think again it's like it's it's helpful to go back to behavior and think about what what is it that we think we're explaining when we say well men have a lot more testosterone than women And I think risk-taking is a really interesting example. So people, for example, following the global financial crisis, there was this sort of idea of, well, if only we'd had more women in the financial system, you know, with their low testosterone levels, they would have been more cautious and we wouldn't have had the kind of reckless risk-taking brackets with other people's money that we actually saw. But when you look at risk-taking, when you look at sex differences in risk-taking, you see a kind of really complex picture. So people have thought about risk-taking as this kind of masculine trait. It's just something that men do. And when you think of it that way, it makes sense to think, oh, well, you know, people with high testosterone, they're going to be risk-takers. They're mostly going to be men. People with low testosterone, they're going to be risk-averse. They're mostly going to be women. It makes sense to go, well, look, men take these risks. They have all this testosterone swilling around in their blood. But then when you actually look at risk-taking, you find that it's very idiosyncratic. So some people are really willing to take physical risks. They you know, they ask them if they'd like to jump out of a plane attached to a, a balloon or whatever it is people do. They're like, yes, please, that sounds great. Other people, you're not so keen, but they're quite happy to, you know, invest in high-risk stocks. Other people are ethical risk-takers. Other people are social risk-takers. And it's quite idiosyncratic. So being one kind of risk-taker doesn't mean that you're necessarily likely to be another kind of risk-taker. So you can already see this kind of creates a problem for this idea that risk-taking is caused by testosterone because you'd expect it to be creating risk-taking across the board, but that's not actually what we see. And again, when you look at sex differences in risk-taking, First of all, it can vary depending on the domain that you're talking about. Financial risk-taking has been sort of grossly exaggerated. Some studies find no differences, actually. It varies from culture to culture, whether you see sex differences in risk-taking. And it can depend on the the kind of context. And you think about the, the context in which people take risks. You know, there isn't necessarily an equal playing field in the risks that people take. You know, what what kinds of attributions are going to be made if things go wrong how much support do they have in the organization for example how harshly are they going to be judged for having made a risk and it not worked out so you know these are all kinds of things that we have to take into account 
And then when you look at the animal data that can obviously do much more sort of detailed experimentation in the links between testosterone and behavior, what you see is that testosterone, it does facilitate particular kinds of behavior, but it's just one factor of many that feeds into the animal's decision-making. And even in non-human animals, the social context or the social status of the animal can actually override, you know, even a chemical castration, right? So we can we can expect that humans are at least as complicated socially as, as monkeys. So it just goes to show that testosterone, it's not that it's not influencing us, but that it's not driving men to behave in kind of hyper-masculine ways in the, in the kind of way that these popular books would also often claim. And in fact, for us humans, it may be changes in testosterone from our kind of baseline level that may be import, more important for influencing our behaviour than the absolute level, which is just one part, one factor of this very complex kind of neuroendocrine system with many different kind of levers that can be part and parcel of what ultimately happens in our behaviour. Is there a circularity to this too that because we expect men to be more risk-taking, we are more likely to use the language of risk around things they might choose to do? So he, you know, he climbs mountains, that's taking a risk, whereas we don't use that language around things that women routinely do. So, for example, we don't say, she's pregnant, wow, that's really a risk. Whereas, I don't know the data, but I suspect, certainly across human history, having children has probably been associated with more death and problems than climbing mountains. So actually, it's the the bigger risk. Do you think that's part of what's going on here? We We find it so hard to unpack the gender stereotyping because it's there in the way we see the world and so then it leads us to these self-reinforcing assumptions. Yeah you're absolutely right yes there's exactly this kind of confirmation bias in the risk-taking research and this was actually a point made by an economist called Julie Nelson who has done a lot of the work kind of debunking the claims about sex differences and risk-taking and she made exactly this point that for example Personal relationships can be quite physically risky for girls and women, as we know, unfortunately. As you said, pregnancy is a risk. And I, I think I quote one of these statistics in my book that actually being pregnant can be is physically riskier than skydiving in some in some countries. But we don't, you're right, exactly right, we don't tend to characterise those as risk-taking because it is such a masculine trait. And in fact, we, with Tekla Morganroth and Michelle Ryan at the University of Exeter, we, we actually looked at this. So we made an effort to think of risky activities that are more typically done by girls and women and to, to see how that affects the findings that you get in terms of sex differences in risk-taking. And we found that, you know, when you use the traditional methods, sometimes you see sex differences, sometimes you don't. And then when you use these kind of more gender-balanced measures of risk-taking, even when you do your best to kind of balance for the objective risk involved, those sex differences can disappear. So, but it's, it's in exactly an example of the, the kind of assumptions that you bring into your research, what is risk-taking behaviour, then confirm the the implicit assumption that yes, risk taking is a is a masculine trait. You're absolutely right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For anybody who has kids, is spending time with kids, is talking about kids, you'd end up having the nature-nurture debate. I was actually having it on the weekend with a friend of mine because he told me that his grandson, the first time that he put two words together, the two words were blue car. I mean, how would you summarise your attitudes to that nature-nurture debate when it comes to what we stereotypically think are male and female traits? And have there been times with your own children where you've looked again because you've seen things that you find either reinforces the research or you find hard to square with the research? Hmm. Yeah, great question. I mean, so I have two sons. So, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about that is, well, first of all, obviously, it's a very small sample size. (laughs) So unless you have like 50 children, you really have to be careful about the inferences that you draw from their behavior. And children are just different. So my two boys, they're, they're very different children. And, you know, one has to recognize that if one were a boy and one were a girl, then it would be very easy to attribute differences to the fact that they're male and female as opposed to just them being different people as we all are but in terms of you know where I stand I guess stand in terms of the nature nurture I think my interest has always been rather than sort of stake some particular claim on that just to sort of unravel the evidence and the claims that are made for this idea that you know boys are wired to to understand the world to understand you know, how systems work, for instance, and girls are wired to, to empathise and to be responsive to, thought, to other people's thoughts and feelings. And just to sort of, you know, unravel a lot of the assumptions behind behind the research. I mean, one thing that is interesting is that when you look at very young children, you know, so under a year of age, they aren't really showing clear-cut differences in the kinds of things that they're interested in. And of course, as children get older and older, they are coming to the researchers with experiences in the world. And, you know, there was a study recently that found that even at a very early age, when babies are sort of barely interested in anything, there are differences in the kinds of toys that baby boys and baby girls have. And it may be that that has that kind of familiarity does have some kind of influence on what kind of things they are interested in. It is true that once children have their sense of themselves as belonging to the boy tribe or the girl tribe, you do see very distinct differences in the kinds of toys that they like to play with and activities. So so developmental psychologists call this children being gender detectives. So they've they've spent the last few years sort of realising that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the, the male people and the female people. They've been learning what goes with being male and what goes with being female and of course you know perhaps now more than any time we kind of give young children a lot of information pink stuff and the blue stuff children's environments children's sort of cultures are, are in a sense more gendered now than they have ever been and it's hardly surprising that when they reach the age of about two or three you know they want to be with the right tribe and become more interested in the things that they know or they've been told are sort of for them or or not for them And why do you think more gendered now than it's ever been for children? 
I mean, I think some of it has to do with just sort of the rise of children as a target of marketing and the idea of segmenting your market. Families become more affluent. They can afford to buy the pink bike and the, the blue bike, or you can sort of create distinct markets. Sociologists might say they might have a more cynical view that as we've had a kind of erosion of this idea of male primacy, that, you know, it's necessary to have very traditional roles where, you know, men are the breadwinners and they have first priority on jobs and women are the, the homemakers. You know, those ideas have very much fallen away. They might say that in their place has come this kind of gender essentialist narrative. It's like, well, anyone can be whatever they want to be, but as it happens, <laughs> girls tend to be very interested in these kinds of things and boys tend to be very interested in, in those kinds of things. So it's a kind of a way of that ideology, gender ideology sort of being transmitted through through children's culture. I mean, purely speculative, obviously, um, but what sociologists have been tracking gender attitudes for a long time. And this is kind of what they've seen. They've seen this sort of uh, falling away of these very traditional views, being replaced by this this kind of liberal gender ideology of sort of separate but equal. So everyone should have equal opportunities, but it just ha- so happens that, that men and women will sort of tend to choose different kinds of opportunities and, and life paths. When we talk about sexist stereotypes, it's easy for that to be a dialogue about other people the male boss who thinks women are too emotional or too soft to get to the next rung of management. They're just not going to be tough enough to do the job. But in reality, and your research shows this so clearly, this kind of gender stereotyping is in all of our brains. And in fact, in some ways, the way that we now argue for women's equality, for feminist causes is also redolent with it. So, for example, many women would be arguing right now in their workplace that a diverse team is better than a non-diverse team because men and women see things differently and so a diverse team will make a better decision. How much do you think we as activists, feminists, are picking up this stereotyping to use as our own tool And where's the evidence on all of this, on diversity being better for business, which is so commonly believed? Mm, That's a great great question because it has been, I mean, particularly when I moved to a position at the Melbourne Business School and so I spent much more time in those kinds of spaces where those kinds of arguments were being made and it was so interesting because it was, you know, the very same kinds of ideas and beliefs about differences between men and women that had previously been used to explain (laughs) why we all should have separate roles, thank you very much, were now being kind of deployed to say, well, this is why we need women on boards and in our leadership teams. And and so I, I suppose there are a few things to say about it. So first of all, we should say there are average sex differences in various kinds of characteristics. When it comes to things that are most relevant to the workplace, these tend to be pretty modest. So the largest ones are things to do with physical aggression and frequency of masturbation and how far you can throw things. Usually in most workplaces, not a key performance indicator, hopefully. So the kinds of things that kind of matter in the workplace tend to be fairly modest, but there are average differences. I think the point, it comes back to the point that I made before about the brains is that 
even though there are these differences, it doesn't mean that we can make kind of useful generalizations about what women are like and what men are like. And it doesn't mean that we can make, you know, useful predictions about what any particular man will be like and what any particular woman will be like. Does that mean that it doesn't matter if we have all male boards? Well, no. And I think that's for a few reasons. So one is, you know, it's very, it's easy to get very focused on the individual and think, you know, let's add a woman and we'll add a bit of pink magic (laughs) to our board and not think about the way that the gender dynamics can change depending on the balance that you have in that board. There's been some fascinating research done in political decision-making that shows that as you change the ratio of men and women in that group decision-making context, and you change the decision rules, so whether it's kind of consensus or majority rules, the dynamics change within that discussion. And they don't just change because you have more women or fewer women. They change because when you have more women, for example, the men start to behave in a different kind of way. So the kind of the norms of the conversation and the values actually shift. So when you have more women, it's not that simply that you're adding more femininity, you're actually changing the way that everyone is behaving. I was so interested to hear one of your former guests, actually, Kate Blanchett. She she mentioned exactly this phenomenon when she was talking about the film industry and the way that actually she actually talked about the men in, in the room sort of contributing in a different kind of way because there was a different gender balance, which I thought was a really interesting observation. So I think that's one thing that we have to take into account. And then secondly, this idea that when you have more women, particularly in senior positions, that that will have kind of positive trickle-down effects on the rest of the organisation. Now, this is kind of a controversial idea, so there'll be some people to say, no, it's just when you have women at the top, it's just equal opportunity oppression, they just become cogs in the wheel, they just assimilate, and they don't help the people below. And there are other people to say, no, 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 women, women can be agents of change, they can have a, a beneficial effect for you know, the gender pay gap for to act as a role model for other women and so on. And I think, you know, there's something I'm still looking at. And I think the research does point to a somewhat more optimistic view, at least in a probabilistic sense. It's not the, it's not the case that, you know, any woman that you shoot up to the top is going to spread rose petals for all women who, who come behind her, but just probabilistically, it is likely to make a difference. And I know the report that the, the Global Institute of Women's Leadership put out looking at the effect of women in political leadership did find this, that there was a positive effect of having women politicians on the kinds of policies uh, and legislation that that they supported and, and pushed through. So, you know, I think there is a there is a kind of positive message here that doesn't require us to talk in terms of stereotypes. Now, this is a question you're probably not going to like. I know you're working on a new book. Can we have a little sneak peek? <laughs> the book is about, it seems like it's such a simple question to answer. You know, why would we even, don't we already know the answer? But it, it's, why does gender equality in the workplace matter? And, you know, this actually kind of follows in a way from your previous question, because the answer that we do tend to get right now is, well, it matters because companies can make more profits or they can be more innovative if they have gender diversity. You know, that's that might be part of the story, but it's really only a, a sliver of why that equal participation in workplaces, which in, you know, in modern economies are the kind of driving engine of so much else that goes on in society, you know, why that matters. So the book is 
telling that story and of why gender equality in the workplace matters, as well as addressing those doubts that are always with us on this question, which is women don't want those positions. We don't have that many women leaders because most women aren't interested in those kinds of positions of power, responsibility and authority. They don't want to make the sacrifices. They have other preferences and values. Those are attitudes that are, I think, quite prevalent in research that we've done at the University of Melbourne. You know, we ask people what they think about gender balance in the workplace and we ask them, you know, what good they think can come of it and we ask them what they worry about with these kinds of efforts And people do worry about, you know, you're going against nature, you're going to undermine merit, you're going to push people into jobs that they don't really want. And so, you know, again, it's like there's a whole wealth of academic literature here that has tackled these issues for decades. And so it's a question of bringing it to a wider audience in an accessible way so they can look at the evidence and, and make up their own minds. We'll look forward to it. Fantastic. Now I'm going to move to the questions I always conclude the podcast with. One is putting a fact to my guest, and I'm in the happy situation this time that I'm going to quote you back to you. In commenting on a University of California study on the distribution of domestic work in families of academics, you say, and I quote, female faculty with children report working 51 hours a week at their jobs and another 51 hours a week doing housework and childcare, truly the second shift. That's a 102-hour working week, accounting for more than 14 hours per day. Faculty fathers, by contrast, put in only 32 unpaid work hours a week. This substantially lighter load not only enables them to put in an extra five hours a week at work, but also to enjoy a spare two hours a day. You then conclude, behind every academic man, there is a woman, but behind every academic woman is an unpeeled potato and a child who needs some attention. Is that how it's been for you? (laughs) (laughs) A a colleague came round to my house for dinner once and he saw that my children, who were quite really quite young at the time, were (laughs) were tasked with making dinner. And he was like, ah, I see how you feminists work. You can't get the men to do it, so you (laughs) use your children instead. And I said, well, whatever works. No, I don't exploit my children as free free child labour. I see it as part of making them responsible boys and men. This is a general issue and it's the sort of stubborn, unglamorous feminist issue that just doesn't go away, which is the unpaid care work. You know, it's so it's so boring, isn't it? But it's it's so easily forgotten. I mean, I was at a, an event not so long ago and you know, the question was how do we how do we get women participating in the labor force at the same rates as men? And you think, well, there's this problem here, which is, you know, actually when you look at the time use statistics in Australia, women are still kind of primarily homemakers. When you look at the amount of time that they spend on unpaid care work versus work, they spend two-thirds of their time on unpaid work, and it's the sort of mirror opposite for men. So you really can't get equality. I mean, Gloria Steinem said this (laughs) decades ago, you can't get equality at work unless you have equality at home and of course workplaces have to adjust as well to sort of recognize the fact that you know the idea of this sort of zero drag worker who has the sort of flow of family work provided by a homemaker or part-time female partner is they're a kind of a dying breed in a in a sense 
yeah, it's this really stubborn issue. And we do spend so much time talking about women and work and much less time talking about men and laundry. If only they had been in the class with you, Julia, learning how to turn on a washing machine, things might be in a, in a better state now. But I think, you know, part of it is like we, we actually don't value that work. You know, we do have to be careful too not to devalue those kind of traditionally feminine roles. Like what, what's more important than raising the next generation of children? I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't exist without it. It's this incredibly important work that goes on, largely done by women. It needs to be more equally shared. What's the worst misogyny you've had to put up with? I don't think I've experienced misogyny in the, in that kind of traditional sense of sort of sheer hatred of women as as women. I think what I find this most sort of tedious aspect of my work is this kind of quite patronising narrative that the people who do the kind of work that I do encounter all the time, which sort of contrasts the sort of objective, truth-seeking man of science versus the politically motivated, slightly hysterical uh, feminist ideologue who's, you know, refuses to acknowledge scientific truths that, that don't fit with her feminist ideology. And I do find this incredibly frustrating because, well, for one thing, in academia, there is not really much room, appropriate room for ad hominem commentary like that. You know, our job is to look at each other's evidence and arguments and make our criticisms of those. It's not to say, ah, another one of these feminists, you know, denying biological reality, we'll, you know, characterize her as such, and then we can then we can move on. You know, science progresses with people challenging each other's assumptions and biases and blinders. And that's how you create actually create scientific objectivity. That's how scientific objectivity emerges. So so I do get frustrated by those kinds of reactions to my work and to to work of colleagues. I have to say one of the, one of the most egregious examples was having someone mansplain my own book to me <laughs> to tell me what I'd argued. I was like, no, 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 that's not that's not my thesis. No, no, this is what you argue. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, I, I suppose I should read your book. <laughs> and I thought, yes, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> if you had all the power in the world for a moment, what would you change for women? If you could change one thing. So, Julia, I am quite a fan of your podcast. So I think I've listened to most of your interviews. So I do know that your previous guests have covered every possible sensible answer to this question already, which is very unfair because I feel like I can't say anything that can add to it. Can I push the boat out and say, can I have seven? Can I have seven things? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> the reason I want seven is because some time ago when I was researching for my new book, I came across this wonderful essay by a political philosopher called Nancy Fraser. And it seemed to me that she kind of just solved the problem of what gender equality is, which is something that we you know, argue about all the time. And so she has these seven principles. And I sort of, I read this and I thought, yeah, I think I actually think that's pretty much it. So I'm going to tell you what these seven principles of gender equality are. And then once we have them, I think we can all relax and have a, a glass of champagne. So her first principle is anti-poverty. So no woman should be in poverty. No woman should be in out of poverty because she's in some kind of exploitative economic or personal relationship. We should have income equality, so equal income for 
equal work. We should have leisure time equality. So, you know, we can share the peeling of the potatoes. We need equality of respect. So, you know, none of this nonsense, that terrible sexism that you had to endure as, as prime minister, for instance, that women are treated with the same respect as, as men at whatever level of society they're in that we don't have marginalisation of women in the sense that women are able to fully participate in every aspect of public life, politics, employment, every aspect of civic society. And this in turn requires what she calls anti-androcentrism, which is this idea that society just has to shift so that there's no longer this kind of male norm of, you know, what a career looks like, what a what life pattern looks like. It doesn't Not that women have to assimilate to that kind of male norm in order to participate in public life, but that everyone kind of adjusts. And, I, you know, I think that, you know, it's academia, so people will have criticisms of it, I'm sure. But to me, those seven things, it's like if we get those sorted, keep going with the <laughs> with your institute, Julie, and sort them out, then I think, I think we'd be a, a long way to gender equality. I love that. That's fantastic. Virginia Woolf says, the most extraordinary thing about writing is that when you've struck the right vein, tiredness goes. It must be an effort thinking wrong. Cordelia Fine says, "Ah, oh, that's a yeah, that's a wonderful quote. I think it's, I think it's very unkind of you, Julia, to, to try and make people top Virginia Woolf, <laughs> <laughs> particularly those of us who kind of pretend to be writers ourselves. Yeah, there, there is a, a wonderful energy to to writing and." I think that's why I do so. I mean, I enjoy the I enjoy the academic writing, but there is such pleasure too in trying to bring all of the wisdom from academic research to a wider audience. That does sort of fill me with energy and joy, at least some of the time. And fortunately, I'm I'm never wrong about anything. So um, <laughs> yes, never tired. <laughs> That's fantastic. Cordelia, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. A podcast of one's own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.